welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis. Continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness, um, I've always been uh, fascinated by uh, radical environmentalism and environmental activism uh, taken to the street, to the forests, to the seas, to the mountains. Um, not that I have uh, really participated in these kinds of actions, but I've always admired the extreme wing, not only for uh, showing the role that militant uh, and sometimes violent politics can play in uh, uh, social and environmental struggles, which of course is a very complicated uh, topic, but, but one that I think that any uh, activist minded person has to uh, think through really uh, seriously and with a great deal of nuance. But I've also been uh, fascinated by the imaginal and uh, even religious dimension of uh, people's lives, so Westerners, so some people grew up in the suburbs, whatever, in the cities. And at some point uh, along the way, they find themselves making a kind of radical commitment to non-human others. Uh, and that's the kind of thing that I tend to see partly because of my own background and training, but also my own sort of philosophical temperament in, uh, in religious terms, that there's something going on here about what we mean by spirituality, what we mean by religion, even if a lot of these people would insist that they're uh, opposed to religion or uh, at least the way that it's manifested in the West. But as I've said before on this uh, podcast many times, um, I'm, you know, I, I think there's a lot to be said for looking at what people do, not just within the obvious signs of religion, but really throughout our lives, societies, um, our psychologies, and to really be willing to look at them in a in a religious light, in the broadest sense of the term religion, not not Christian religion, not pagan religion, uh, not just spirituality, the whole kit and caboodle. Uh, broadly taken, I think, can never be removed from the picture, even if we were talking in, in secular ways about secular topics, or at least supposedly secular to topics like nature or the environment or uh, the forests and the trees. In fact, that's a better way of talking about it. I have a friend who studies um, uh, environmentalism and apocalypse, and uh, he's a super theoretical uh, scholar, uh, PhD uh, now teaching at Dartmouth, and uh, he he made a vow to him uh, to himself that when he was writing about this, the topics that he were that were that interested him that he was going to no longer use the word nature, uh, and it's a very interesting or environment. Uh, the, it's a very interesting challenge because it forces you to get concrete. Uh, both nature and environment are extremely abstract terms, which makes them handy ways to refer to very complex ecosystems, networks of creatures and processes, uh, but also has the sort of inherent problem of abstraction. Uh, and it loses that quality of relationality, of concreteness, of even of individuals of having relations, not just with ecosystems or mountains, but with particular trees, with particular animals, uh, with, with clouds, with, uh, with, with, with zones that you know intimately. Uh, and it's precisely those kinds of experiences and those kinds of relationships uh, that often lead people to become um, radicalized by their uh, environmental commitments. Um, and th uh, the story of this kind of stuff is, is told uh, wonderfully in a new book uh, by the scholar of religion, Sarah Pike, 
the book is called For the Wild, Ritual and Commitment in Radical Eco-Activism. And uh, I've met Sarah off and on over the years. We haven't really had as much time together as, as I would have liked. Uh, she's definitely a, a fellow traveler, uh, a, a long-time Burning Man participant, and someone who's written some terrific books about uh, paganism. Her earlier books are New Age and Neo-Pagan Religions in America and Earthly Bodies, Magical Selves. And and uh, Sarah's one of those uh, scholars who I think do, does some of the most important work in contemporary scholarship and that sadly is too often paid attention to by people outside uh, scholarship. And that is to do very close participant observer uh, ethnographic work in a given community uh, and just writing in very clear ways about what motivates people, how they think, what, 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 are, what are the important models of reality that they're using, and then also reflecting on her own relationship to these practices, because, of course, if you spend a lot of time with people that resonate with you uh, in some ways, you're going to take on some of their worldview, or you're going to sort of see the ways in which you, too, are in, involved in the story, both as an ethnographer and as just as a person, and she does a wonderful job of reflecting on her own um, ideas, uh, her own politics, her own experience uh, in terms of the question that she's pursuing in the book, which is how do people, mostly young people, um, become radicalized by their environmental commitments, so much so that they're willing to go and put their bodies on the line, that they're going to drop out of society and go into this sort of alternative world um, and uh, sometimes commit um, crimes uh, sometimes commit acts that some people would call violence. It's hard to say exactly what the destruction of property is. Is that a violent act? Is it not a violent act? Um, these issues are, of course, debated uh, fiercely within uh, environmentalism. But uh, Sarah's less interested in the in the abstract debates and more interested in the question of what drives people to do this. And uh, the what and she she does a great job of paying attention, particularly to the motivating emotions the affects, wonder, fear, anger, mourning, sadness that uh, drive uh, people, um, that, that turn them into uh, uh, warriors for the earth. So uh, I can't wait to continue the conversation with Sarah. Thank, Sarah, thanks for joining us on Expanding Mind. Hi, Eric. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, no, I and wanted to say, for the of course, great you're, intro. You're, a scholar, you're a scholar at Chico, right? You're still, you're still at Chico. That's right. Cal State Chico. That's Excellent. where I am. Yeah. Excellent. So, I'm in a department uh, of comparative religion. Right. One of the uh, obvious questions is uh, what um, uh, you, you wrote, you, you've written about paganism, neo-paganism, modern uh, American, mostly uh, um, uh, nature religions. So and there's obviously a connection uh, to the general topic of, of environmental activism uh, here. Uh, and I guess I maybe start out with that, with that topic. And before that, I just want to reflect the first time that I encountered real hardcore earth firsters uh, was at, uh, at, at uh, um, Anwen in the, the Church of All Worlds uh, gatherings in Northern California in like 1993 or 1992. So for me, my exposure to Earth First and to radical environmentalism was deeply embedded uh, in paganism and a pagan kind of worldview. So uh, I'm kind of interested in hearing how you move through these uh, these worlds to come to focus on the uh, environmental st side of the story. 
Yeah, thanks, Eric. And it's it's fascinating that you brought up uh, your encounter at Anwin because Anwin because uh, I didn't know about that until I was really at the end of my project and I interviewed Daryl Cherney um, up in uh, Garberville. And he talked about how many of the Earth Firsters involved with the Redwood uh, Redwood Wars uh, in the 1990s would go there to get sort of spiritually recharged. And I really, I mean, I mean, before that, I had seen paganism as kind of an implicit worldview, more something that activists had dabbled with as teenagers, and that was true for many of them. But this was the first time that there was a connection to a really specific location that's identified with a pagan tradition, the Church of All Worlds. And of course, it's appropriate because the Church of All Worlds, probably more than any other uh, organized pagan religion, has foregrounded uh, ecological issues and the, the sense of the earth as a goddess. And many pagans would agree that, you know, the earth is divine in some way, but I think uh, the Church of All Worlds has really made that central uh, in their uh, belief system and their practice. So that was a, a really great connection for me because I just hadn't seen it. I'd seen it much more as a kind of subtle background uh, for a lot of activists. But as I started doing my research, I did find that uh, a number of the activists that I interviewed as teenagers had identified themselves as pagans or Wiccans and had experimented, uh, mostly alone, not within organized groups, um, with those ritual practices, but that what was more important for them was a kind of philosophical orientation. So in the book, I really talk about the presence of paganism and its relationship to radical environmentalism in two ways. And one is this more sort of personal orientation that, that young people have derived from reading about paganism or knowing a little bit about it, the sense that everything is interconnected and that the divine is imminent, that it's in this world around us, that it's, you know, it's in the trees, it's in the other animals. And so that was one aspect that I wanted to develop in the book. But the other one was really looking historically to see, you know, where is the presence of paganism and other religions in a kind of radical protest tradition? And I found that particularly in California, uh, it was really important in the anti-nuclear movement, for example. And so it's it's had a kind of background presence. And, and in some cases, it's been foregrounded in ritual activities uh, you know, back in the 19, early 1980s, late 1970s, uh, at anti-nuclear protests. So I was curious to kind of see it cropping up again, but, you know, more in a subtle way. I mean, I haven't been to any uh, uh, protests in recent years where there's been a pagan ritual that was part of the public protest. It, you know, partly because I think it's increasingly been an anarchist uh, influenced movement in the last, say, 20 years, and that sort of suspicion of anything that might be considered organized religion, even though there's such an affinity um, for a, a kind of contemporary pagan view of the world. But do you think that might also be a reflection of how uh, paganism itself is really changing, that the um, I mean, it's, this is sort of a question for you. It's, I guess it's a little sidelight from your book, but it's something that's been on my mind. Um, whether the forms of religious practice, of uh, language, of mythology, of gatherings that, you know, I, that I sort of experienced in the 1980s and 1990s exploring paganism, 
whether that's sort of really changing also as uh, the world changes, as generations change, um, and so that some of the social justice or anarchist sides of the environmental movement that we see more uh, of more preponderance of now also kind of reflects changes that's that are going on even within uh, paganism. Yes, absolutely. I've been curious about this too, and and still trying to track it. And no one's really doing quantitative work, so it's it's kind of hard to tell. And as you pointed out, I do you know participant observation, the kind of on the ground, close view of things. But I at least in conversation with other scholars of paganism, I, I mean, I'm seeing a couple of trends. So one is that the sort of joining traditions, Gardnerian witchcraft or uh, uh, Arndrachtfane, you know, Druid tradition, that seems to have been, it's kind of stable. It isn't really growing that much in terms of um, membership, uh, as far as I can tell. I mean, certainly some areas might be growing more than others, but there's been a kind of leveling out of growth. But the the other thing that's been going on is a kind of dispersal or kind of spreading out of these pagan practices and pagan views of the world into other spaces. So I'm thinking of not just the environmental movement, where I think it's it's pretty blatantly there, um, but also, you know, festivals. Uh, you mentioned Burning Man, of course, um, which is a festival you and I are both familiar with, but many of the other festivals also have pagan elements. Though the people might not identify as pagan or Wiccan or Druid, um, they've incorporated just certain ways of being in the world and certain kinds of ritual practices, even just, you know, uh, the circles that people have at the beginning and end. And, of course, other traditions have circles, but I think paganism has certainly pushed the sort of circular ritual structure in very public ways. And then also the spiritual dance movement, which is something I've been studying a little bit recently and that I've been a participant in for quite a few years, so ecstatic dance and five rhythms and, and a lot of those um, movements also have these kinds of pagan elements, but don't identify explicitly with any contemporary pagan tradition. So, so I think something really interesting is going on here um, that you know someone really ought to to look at more closely. But I think we definitely see that happening with the radical, especially the young radical environmentalists and even animal rights activists. If they're not identified with a specific religious tradition, and most of them aren't, um, then the closest you know, the closest closest worldview uh, for them is really paganism, even though they don't necessarily identify it as such. Of course, another uh, important um, religious tradition, if you will, that uh, is, 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 is central to your story uh, is, is one of my favorite pockets of uh, pop culture religion, um, you know, the, the Hare Krishna hardcore movement, uh, yeah. the way in which uh, – Straight edge um, kids, uh, some of them started to turn to Krishna consciousness, and that this led to sort of certain radical stances on uh, vegetarianism and and other things that also in your story definitely feed into uh, the current culture of uh, radical environmentalism. Did you know much about that? I mean, that was something. I mean, I, you you cite a story that I wrote back in the day for for Spin, which was totally a blast because I didn't know it very much about it. I knew about the Cro-Mags record, but I thought it was like just yeah. a, a kind of one-shot deal, but I didn't realize that it had made a whole scene. Did you know much about that before you uh, you did your research? No, I didn't. I mean, I, I read your article at some point. I think I was doing a project on sort of religious hardcore, 
and I came across your article, which is a wonderful piece on this world. And it was like, oh, wow, I had no idea this was going on. But there's nothing, of course, about animal rights or environmental activism in there. So that I didn't make, I didn't know that connection. That was a big surprise for me, and it really came up in interviews um, with Peter Young. Um, when he was uh, serving a prison sentence for freeing a bunch of mink um, from mink farms, and I asked him about, you know, what, you know, what were some of the influences—books or films or music or, you know, just out of curiosity—and he wrote this long reply about the importance of hardcore and straight edge, and you know, as not just for his own conversion—and I use that word to to animal rights, but for a number of prominent activists that that had been their background. And, and that just opened up this whole possibility to explore this other way of coming into um, activism, especially for young, especially for young men, but there were some young women as well, um, that I had absolutely no idea was, you know, that connection. I mean, I knew about the, the Hare Krishna hardcore, but nothing about the influence on animal rights. And then, of course, some of the other straight-edge bands like Earth Crisis, which is not particularly religious, but has a kind of pagan worldview, in a sense, even though they might not call it that, that were so uh, influential in terms of really spurring people on, giving that sort of sense of urgency and the, you know, the, the do-it-yourself uh, emphasis in, in the long history of punk rock, and certainly, you know, that carried over into Straight Edge. So there's a lot of, of themes there that I found just, just fascinating that, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't encountered before. You know, you, you just used the, the word conversion there, and it, 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 you know, raises lots of interesting questions in my mind, you know, one of which is, what is valuable about holding on to the religious lens, even as you look at phenomena, which as we've already talked about in multiple ways, even in 15 minutes, um, is, you know, somewhat hard to put into a completely religious framework, and that many of the people would even re reject that kind of approach. But it's but I, you, know, you and I both agree that it's it's still very valid, very valuable way of approaching it, and particularly in your story here around this idea of conversion, uh, that yeah. there's something going on here. And so I just love to hear you like, why is that still valuable? I mean, a, a lot of the people in your book they would go conversion. This isn't a born again thing. This is not what we're talking about. But with the broader view, you see some connections, and and I'd like to hear why why that's still a valid approach. Yeah, it's a really great question, and I did struggle a little bit with that language at first, although it was it so resonated with the stories I was hearing, which were standard conversion narratives. You know, they were stories about, you know, here's the way I grew up, and you mentioned this before. Okay, so not all of them grew up in middle-class suburban families, but many of them did, and that was a common story. Oh, you know, my parents were Christian, we went to church, but you know, this was a worldview that, you know, became foreign to me, and I rejected it, and I rejected everything in my past, the materialism of my past, and, you know, it just sounds like something from the, you know, the evangelical movement of the 18th century. So, and, and of course, those conversion narratives continue um, to be prominent in American Christianity, so I thought, oh, that's fascinating. Here are people that are rejecting the Christian tradition especially, um, that was the one that came up the most, although the activists I talked to, you know, came from other backgrounds as well. Christianity was the most um, common one. But, you know, they were so anti-Christianity, and yet they'd incorporated this language. And in fact, then I found several examples where people used that phrase, born again, or um, used the phrase, baptized, 
well, I was baptized into animal rights or I was born again as an activist. So they themselves were even using that language. So not only was I seen as a kind of um, phenomena, but that uh, that was the language that not all of them, but many activists were, were using to talk about their own journey into the activist world. Yeah, and it really underscores, uh, I think, on, on the one hand, a deeply American process um, that has to do with the centrality of conversion, conversion narratives, and indeed emotions within the practice of religion. Of course, other, you know, other nations, other places have these things going on, but there's something particular about the American articulation of emotional conversion. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, also reminding us that, that the question of the environment and even more the question of the wild at least in America, can never be separated from questions of religion. Again, even if the people who are using that language aren't interested in, you know, traditional religion at all, there's something about our our imagination, our, our relation, our imaginal relationship, as well as our, you know, psychic or psychological relationship with actual living places and trees and forests and animals. There's something in that that is, uh, again, comes out of a a very strong tradition, which you you talk about, uh, uh, you know, uh, you give a good ba- a background on that stuff as well. But it's almost interesting. It's like environmental activism that crossed two streams that hadn't been crossed at least very often before. This kind of radical militancy and uh, th- that has a conversion kind of born again ferocity to it, as well as a profound relationship with the uh, with particularly with wild places. Mm hmm. So yeah, what, do you, what think, about that wildness? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the place of the wild, and you brought this up in your intro when you talked about nature and the, all the stuff that gets projected on nature. Um, but I think the place of the wild and the wilderness in the American imagination, I mean, it's a central theme that I talk about a lot and focus on in my classes because it goes back, of course, to colonization and the wilderness for colonists, you know, tended to be one of two things. You know, it was either this place where the devil roamed, right, this place that needed to be conquered and tamed because it was everything opposed to a Christian worldview. And, you know, I'm thinking of the Jesuit missionaries, for example, you know, that the light of Christianity needed to be brought to these dark places. But the other theme that's also there in the very beginning is that utopian kind of hopefulness about the wilderness is this backdrop upon which you know, the the colonists can remake themselves, you know, so it figures very prominently in a kind of conversion narrative, the starting over, you know, maybe not necessarily in the language of being born again, but, but starting over, starting in a blank slate, and always with the sense that there there's nobody here, you know, not only are there no native people here, but, you know, there there are no other beings here that are going to be affected by this. So I think it's just a fascinating move this sort of, you know, idea of the wilderness. And then in in a way, activists are doing a similar kind of thing. They see the wild as redemptive in the same way that some early colonists and early Christians coming to this continent saw it as redemptive if they didn't see it as, you know, the abode of Satan. Um, So I think that that theme, that that sort of imagined... um, 
you know, space in our psychology for wilderness. I mean, it's just there's all kinds of different ways to talk about it, but we tend to project on it whatever it is we need, right? And for activists, it's the redemp- it's it's redemption in the future. It's the wilderness should take over the planet. It should, you know, you know, somehow erase all the horrible things that human beings have done. So I just find it fascinating that here again, I see activists as, as really working within a, a, a very American context. And it's not that other, I mean, other countries have similar kinds of themes, but there's an emphasis that I think is particularly American, or at least goes back to the kind of colonization tradition of looking for, you know, new places to start over. Well, here, here's a question that's a, it's maybe a little bit more, uh, uh, I don't know, I'm not exactly sure. Now, it's not quite the questions that you're asking in the book, but it's one that, that's come up with my, to my mind many times, is that if, if nothing else, your book shows at, at how powerfully emotional environmental activism is for many people, especially many of the people who are pushing it really far. We're really dedicating their entire lives to it. And we may disagree about some of the tactics or methods, but it's clearly that if you're talking about what can motivate people to become more environmentalist, the kinds of emotions and experiences and ideas that you describe are really key, at least at least now. But of course, there are many people, including many people who are, you know, consider themselves deeply environmentalists, who are increasingly critical of the whole rhetoric of the wild and of wilderness, partly because it's not always so accurate. You know, they thought, uh, you know, Yosemite was uh, the, the, the pinnacle of wildness. But then, of course, we realized that, right. you know, Na- Native Americans have been have been tending the land for, you know, centuries and centuries. And that even the very idea that of some place where there's no human trace is kind of not necessarily the, a, a helpful idea and may even be for the future of, envir- of the environment, depending on how you, you know, frame that. Not such a helpful idea. Do you feel like the wilderness wild idea and and experience really, because it's not just an idea for these people, that the, it's it's incredibly motivating in, in their own lives. But do you also have a sense of it, maybe that it's it's uh, it doesn't have an eternal lifespan, or there's something kind of problematic about it in ways that that um, activists aren't really wrestling with. Yes and no. I I think activists are beginning to wrestle with this issue, and it's taken a while. I mean, I'm thinking about works like Charles Mann's book on 1491 and all that. You know, we're learning so much more from archaeology and, you know, as well as oral history, of course. And just by paying attention to the Native cultures that are still here around us and and what their practices are. Uh, But this idea that this was no wilderness, it was a garden, you know, and that it, it, the hum, human hands had been on it, had been shaping it, um, for, you know, for millennia. So activists, I, I, I definitely see discussion of that. It's not that that is a denied history. So I think there's a really interesting tension um, in activist communities between the, the sort of ideal of the wild that I mentioned before of kind of redeeming us and the acknowledgement that well, we're defining what the wild is. There is no sort of essential wild. And so they'll talk about it in the sense of, well, making, you know, sort of rewilding places is by removing the human hand as much as possible. So there, I'd say there, for many of them, there is an awareness. But one of the other ways that um, this tension gets played out between this sort of ideal of the wilderness and the acknowledgement that, you know, humans have created this, it's a construct, uh, is in 
attitudes towards human beings. So there's quite a spectrum in terms of activists that are more misanthropic, I would say, that really don't care if humans survive and, in fact, prefer that, you know, humans do not. And it doesn't matter what humans they're talking about, whether they're people that have been oppressed or whether they are people who have oppressed others. All human beings are bad. And then there are others, of course, who are really concerned with social justice issues and environmental racism and, you know, all kinds of other issues about human survival. So I think that's one of the ways that 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 tension um, gets played out. Well, another way that you talk about the wild, and this is probably the most fascinating part of the book for me because it, it, it was the most strange and kind of marvelous, is the way in which... Uh, we're not just talking about ideas here, ideas about the wild, ideas about nature. We're also talking about um, ways that people change through their practices, through their rituals, through their experience, through their bodies. And you talk about um, how activists sort of go feral, which we might think of as another maybe more mammalian form of the wild, uh, mm-hmm. In terms of just living out there, living out in the forest for weeks, for months, living up in trees, having your body be encrusted, maybe not bathing, uh, sharing, uh, becoming very intimate with all the, the wind and the, and the cold and the mud and the birds and the beasts that are, you know, running around your legs or whatever that in that in so doing there, they're really actually changing the kind of people they are they're becoming mm-hmm. different sorts non-urban you know de-urbanized people and often they take names of plants or animals that they have a particular connection with so there's a sense of of, of a discovery not just of nature and as an abstraction but of a place of particular creatures some of whom you have particular experiences with um, that part, it was so fascinating to me and it, in, a, in a way, to my mind, uh, underscored how the wild still is a valid uh, category, even if we acknowledge that that native peoples were, were were tending the wild and that it doesn't exist in some kind of abstract way or a pure way, that at the same time, at least for modern folks, uh, people raised in the suburbs, raised in cities, raised with modern media, whatever, that there is some kind of possibility of becoming more feral that itself can be a portal into really significant changes of consciousness, of worldview, of commitment. Um, So I just like to hear you expand a little bit about that side of the process of becoming activist uh, in, in your book. Thanks, Eric. That's actually one of my favorite themes in the book. And, and I don't know if it's because I perhaps I had more personal resonance with that as a child being a tree climber. I spent a lot of time with trees. So I think as I, as I got those details in activist stories, I was really intrigued. And it also seems to me that the stories that activists told about especially tree sitters, but not only tree sitters, but tree sitters in particular, you know, living up in a tree for months or in some cases um, years, uh, that the sense that they are sharing a body with these other bodies and that the boundary is so much more porous than we tend to remember it is, right? I mean, we can read all the science on the microbiome and, and these kinds of things, but we don't tend to live our, our everyday lives as if we are constantly in relationship with other creatures. But when you're living in a tree, it, it's, 
it's much more present to you. And that those descriptions of being in the tree and and feeling the kind of porosity of your body and its body or your body and, you know, the flying squirrel's body, it really strikes me that how, you know, a lot of this, you know, we have these theories now from political science and philosophy about, um, you know, sort of the new materialism or the new animism, but activists were really living what scholars are just theorizing about. I mean, they were living it and experiencing it through their bodies. And for many of them, what was particularly resonant about those experiences in trees or, or at protests was that they evoked these memories of being children. And, you know, even with some suspicion about the way we reconstruct memory through the present lens, it doesn't really matter whether it was true or not. But they have these very uh, rich memories of being children in the woods or interacting with um, non-human animals, being close to particular trees, often trees that they had named, and really seeing themselves and remembering themselves as children who were not separate from the world around them, who were not separate from other species. And so I think being able to bring those memories into the present in the context of a protest or, you know, such as a tree sit, um, is one of the ways that activists really become so deeply committed. So on the one hand, we could say, well, they're remembering something from childhood that's deeply embodied, you know, we know that memories are in our bodies, right? They're there, whatever they were. And also the construction of a narrative about childhood as something of an ideal, of, a, you know, a potential certain kind of childhood experience uh, with non-human species. That should be the way that we live, and that is a way that really recognizes in a very, you know, vivid and concrete way that we aren't bounded beings, right? We're always becoming with these other creatures and objects and landscapes. And that part of of the of the project, the research project, I think really moved me. You know, the way that I feel activists in their very detailed and concrete descriptions give us as contemporary people who are struggling with, you know, our presence and relationship to other other species, they they give us some models to think about, and they give us some, you know, ideas. Regardless of what you think about their their tactics, different ways of being in the world that we are in desperate need of right now. So I would say, yeah, again, that part of the book was was probably the one that that moved me and drew me in um, the most deeply. Yeah, let's, I want to kind of push on this a little bit more and, and also invite you to talk, you know, as personally as you want to about your own own experience. But it seems to me that, that to in order to really take advantage of these experiences, you know, meaning, you know, so that they can inform larger conversations or that they can add some, uh, you know, experiential juiciness to more abstract or philosophical ideas about new materialism or new animism, that in order to do that, you have to you have to clear something out of the way. And what you have to clear out of the way is sort of a cluster of ideas that run like this. When we're little kids, we don't really know what the real world is about. We have a lot of imagination and our imagination fills in, you know, 
sort of illusions about the world and that as we age, we finally get to recognize that, get a better understanding of our objects and the laws of physics and how limited our own imaginations are. And when that happens, we recognize that it's sort of a childlike state. Maybe we miss it. Maybe we like to go see, uh, you know, a, a fu- warm, fuzzy uh, Disney movies or, or uh, Studio Ghibli movies where there's enchanted animals in the landscape, but we know it's a lie. We know it's a fiction, it's an illusion that kids are susceptible to. And that's a deeply, deeply held presupposition in the modern world, not just amongst kind of mainstream people, but amongst scholars, academics, philosophers are very critical of projection is the, you know, the term, oh, these, these people are projecting their imaginations, projecting their fantasies, projecting their memories onto uh, nature. And, you know, there's some truth to all of that for sure, but there's something profoundly missed that it feels like your activists and, and indeed the the ideas that we've been talking about that you've brought forward Point us to another way of looking at this side of, of, of the imagination, let's call it, that the imagination isn't just a projection machine, that it's also a portal or another sensory organ that allows us to see something about boundaries, about what's around us, about other beings that we can't see with our rational scientific minds. So what I want to know is how do we get far? I mean, how do we get that out of the way, or how do we get a better way of under, of, of talking about projection or fantasy or imagination, so that we can go deeper into the experiences of wonder and of relationship that you that you describe uh, so many of these people going through. Wow, that's really uh, a challenging question because, yeah, I, I'm not really very optimistic <laughs> to tell you the truth. Nevertheless. I mean, I feel like whenever we can break it down, whenever we can make that portal, and that's a great word that you used, available, um, we should try to do so. And so I'm thinking about the whole tradition of, of, of kind of wonder in the natural world. And, I mean, this goes farther back, but Rachel Carson, of course, is, is one of the main folks that, that really, you know, popularized this. And she wrote a book about wonder for parents and children, you know, taking your children out into nature. So one of the things that I have seen that I think is a move in a positive direction is more literature about childhood, about um, nature affective disorder, uh, or not uh, nature deficit disorder. That's Richard Louv's, um Last Child in the Woods. There's sort of more mainstream, you know, even in schools of ed, sort of discussion of the role of the non-human in children's development. So that's one thing. That's one aspect that I think is positive and is happening on a small scale, that that there is more awareness. Just in terms of health, you know, articles in the New York Times, some op-ed in the New York Times saying something about, you know, we all need to get outside and walk in the woods more. I mean, that there's there's evidence, there's um, uh, neuroscientific evidence about the effects uh, on our brains of walking in the woods, those kinds of, so that's happening. But what you've pointed out, I think, is a much more problematic issue, and that is this evolutionary way of thinking about what a human being is and how a human being should relate to uh, our surroundings, right? 
the idea that childhood is something to be left behind. I think you used the word illusion, right? That way, or the illusions of childhood, that, those ways of thinking about other creatures as, you know, in relationship with us, as equal. And that's a really important emphasis that activists have of, of the non-human species being on a par with human beings. And they identify childhood, and I think to some extent, you know, research on child, on children and their relationships to trees and, and other animals suggests that they do tend to think more. I mean, it depends on what age, but that developmentally, they do tend to think more about other beings as, as having worlds of their own, as being equal to us or being like us in some way. And that, you know, is educated out of them. And so that, that's, that whole emphasis on becoming adult, um, moving away from that wonder in the world around you, moving away from that sense of porosity with, with other beings. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I think it's something that our educational system just instills in us from a very young age. You know, we as parents and teachers... We continue to perpetuate the notion that we are separate from everything else on this planet, even though we know <laughs> intellectually that it's not the case. So I, I think that, you know, so while I do see some positive trends, I think in general we're not moving in, in a positive direction in terms of trying to reclaim you know, a different way of relating, you know, being in relationship, developing relationships with the world around us that is not part of, you know, human, that that we have not seen as part of the human, right? Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I, mean, I don't have a good answer for that. No, no, it's a tough one. I mean, the only other thing I would I would add briefly is just that the, the, the paradox that as we learn more and more about animals and, and behavior and emotion in animals, we are increasingly recognized that the child's view is partially, in some ways, more correct than our, than our rationalist right. you know, Cartesian views. That it, it's literally, yeah. like scientifically, it's just more correct that the, yeah. animal, that, you know, the bird is sad. And, and it's, you know, it's challenging to exactly articulate what that means, but it is clear that there are, that these beings are emotional, that they do have memory, that they do make decisions, that they, you know, all of these things that, that, that might've looked like quote unquote anthropomorphization in the past now look like truth or something closer to truth. Yeah. So that's another side yeah. that I, I feel slightly more positive about. Um, no, you're about, right. I, I mean, I, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, just to, to, um, interrupt there because I, I do think this is important and I raise it a bit in the book but but maybe not as much as I might have. I think the work of scientists like uh, Mark Beckhoff who I met early on in this project and just really helped me think about non-human animals in different ways. So his work on animal emotions, I mean this is really a positive development. All of the, I mean there are, you know there I'm sure there are negative sides to it and we could think about what those are. But their recognition of animals' emotional lives and the, all the new work on animal behavior. And I think, you know, m much more awareness on a, on a general level of animal suffering, non-human animal suffering, alongside human suffering, of course, uh, is something that is, is recent and to me is a, is a good sign that we are willing to rethink 
this sort of human superiority or over other species or the idea that, yeah, like you said, in a way, children, children were, are right. You know, that this isn't just, we can't just accuse other humans of anthropomorphizing, that that's like somehow childish. In fact, there's plenty of scientific basis for, you know, what, I mean, I remember Mark Beckhoff telling me, he said, you know, we used to always be criticized for anthropomorphizing our research subjects, right? But increasingly, it's hard not to. And the evidence is there that, yeah, especially in terms of animal emotions. So, yeah. So we have about a, a, you know, a little bit over 10, 10 minutes left. And there, there's another uh, issue that I, I'm really interested in hearing you about. And, um, and, and you, you talk about it. To, there's a whole chapter devoted to it in your book, which is the role, the increasingly central role of so social justice uh, arguments and, and activism within environmentalism and or within the sort of radical environmentalist zones that, that you're looking at. One just simple question is it's interesting and I, and I noticed and I don't know whether this is an artifact of just how your research was done or whether it's symptomatic of something is that a lot of the, the really radical acts that you talk about, the things that wound people up sometimes with horrific prison terms, which is another topic in terms of the disproportionate number of years for things that are much less nasty than a lot of things people go to prison for far less time for. But we'll leave that aside. But a lot of the (laughs) the radical acts you talk about are in the 90s and the early 2000s. And a lot of the people that you're interviewing who who are really, you know, hardcore devotees of, of environmental activism are kind of clustered around that time. And then more recently, you talk about uh, you're, you know, you go to, to various rendezvous and, and gatherings and, and, and uh, you know, uh, protests talking about some of the social justice aspects of it. And I'm just wondering, wondering how much of a shift there has been away from a more purist nature, earth first kind of uh, radicalism for the non-human within environmental activism and how much it is shifting now to become part of or in more densely interwoven with the sorts of social justice issues we're, we're aware of in, a, in, a, in many other domains uh, outside of the environment. Right. Yeah, this is something that I was interested in because just from my very first beginning, you know, the first kind of people that I talked to, you know, some old timers who'd been around um, since the early days of Earth First and were bemoaning the fact that the, you know, discussions about sexism or, you know, attempts to decolonize activist communities uh, were taking over, were, were taking concern for the quote-unquote, the wild, uh, or nature, uh, in quotes, uh, you know, that, so this was one of the most, this was the most controversial issue that I dealt with. I mean, yes, there was quite a bit about, you know, violence, whether property destruction was violence. Those were also important debates, but the biggest kind of rift, I think, um, is this, you know, what you know, what do you prioritize? And the sense that you have to prioritize something, at least for some people, that the wild, however you want to construe that, um, you know, fighting extraction industries, fighting logging, that that has to take priority over any consideration of human beings. That, you know, there's still many people that 
are very committed to that. But there's definitely been a huge shift uh, in activist communities, Earth First and others, um, to looking at, you know, intersectionality, you know, the intersection of different forms of oppression, you know, the and this, I mean, certainly eco-feminists were writing about this decades ago, but in terms of the way it came into the activist community, looking at uh, oppression of women and, you know, uh, oppression of the earth together, I mean, those kinds of things, and particularly the role of indigenous people in all of this, um, the role of poor communities in terms of who and we can just think about that recent uh, pipeline uh, leak. You know, this is this is not in uh, a suburban America. This is in the back, you know, in the backyard of uh, Indian reservation. And you know, who is suffering because of these environmental issues, uh, which human populations are suffering? So these issues have really uh, emerged as you know, among the most urgent. And I and I think part of it is a more sophisticated understanding in some cases of the complexity of ecosystems and the role of human beings in them, that they aren't, you know, kind of back to what we were talking about earlier, that there isn't, you know, the, a, a better understanding that there isn't a sort of untrammeled, you know, pristine wilderness out there somewhere, but that, you know, human beings have always been involved in and in relationship with other beings in these ecosystems. So I think part of it comes from that, but also from a critique of the environmental movement by African Americans, by Native Americans, you know, for being, uh, you know, paternalistic or simply racist, Uh, in their view. And some of this, um, for instance, anti-immigration statements that some uh, environmentalists in the early 1990s made, um, Earth Firsters in particular, got a lot of flack. And I think so there's really been uh, a a major shift in these movements and some, you know, particularly Earth First, which is the biggest sort of organized, well, it's hard to say organized because it's anarchic, but it is an organized movement in many ways. They have gatherings, they have protests, and they really cannot conduct themselves anymore, as far as I've seen, without attention to uh, colonization. So really looking at the land on wit- that w- where they are protesting and recognizing the many layers of its history, and without addressing the relationships within, you know, between the human beings in the movement, that it's not just our problematic relationships with other species, but our problematic relationships with other humans that we need to be paying attention to. And so, you know, that's hard work, right? And so it often does, it takes away sometimes from getting something done so you can have a protest. And so I I think these are going to continue to be really really stressful and fraught issues uh, in animal rights and radical environmentalism. And some of it is coming from other shifts. I think the Occupy movement had uh, a major effect. There was a lot of overlap with um, occupiers coming into these uh, activists, these other activist circles. And that kind of, you know, the critique of capitalism, I mean, it's always been there. And, And really, there's always been some attention to social justice from the very beginnings of groups like Earth First, but it hasn't always been as dominant and as public as it is now. Yeah, it's a really fascinating one. I mean, I, I, I found my own reactions were very complicated to, to reading that because on the, um, you know, on the one hand, 
if you you know to go back to something we were talking about earlier is it seems like some of the the power of this this whole environmental activism of, of what it means in American history history of American religion da 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 in terms of thinking also about the future and different ways of being in the world is that part of its power is that it's it's not just a political position but it's a political position that comes out of a certain kind of subjectivity certain kind of way of being in the world that's been cha- transformed in this way towards the non-human that there's some non-human relationality that is intensified significantly, even if there's some projection or fantasy or idealism or whatever is in there, there's still this kind of like, I am a different kind of person that is now no longer thinking anthropocentrically, that I'm in Mm -hmm. relation with these non-humans on a fundamental existential level. And so when I see the way that social justice issues enter in and then you 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 describe very well like, the dynamics of particular gatherings where there are, you know, are, uh, uh, you know, safe circles set up where people, you know, not people of color can go and then these are get represent and then this and that. Then there's questions around language and all the identity and the transgender pronouns and all that kind of stuff. And I look at it and I go, well, yeah, we, we you know, that's just I totally makes sense why that has to be here for a lot of reasons. And yet there's a part of me that's like. The one thing about those social justice issues is that even if they're absolutely necessary, even if they're absolutely necessary to environmental politics, that there's something on the level of process that folds it back into the human. That once again, we're back in the human, dealing with human signs, dealing with human representations, human media, human identifications. And that, there, that, that, there's a loss there, and I don't know if it's necessary. I don't know if it's just something that the movement has to ingest and move forward. But I'm just hoping that there's still that drive towards really having a relationship with the non-human because otherwise it just becomes another extension of this, crit- this critique of, of capitalism or you know, structural racism and all those things which totally need to be happening. But then you lose what's specific about this. And I don't know whether I just sound like an old, old guard because I am <laughs> you know, or what. But, you know, <clears throat> yeah. but I, I, I'm curious how you see that. Like, do you, does that, is that a concern that you would say to add more? You know, if you, I was going to push you on have, you know, issuing a kind of uh, judgment on it. Or do you see that that's just inevitably part of the process of becoming more environmentally sensitive people? Um, I think it's a concern. I I also struggled with this issue, which is why I wanted to write about it, because if anything makes me uncomfortable, it's probably going to be something that I need to write about. So I really did my best to try to understand the different perspectives. And of course, I really get it. This is important work, and we need to do it as a society. Um, but it is often a distraction to the point where um, some of, you know, on some days, at, a, at an Earth First gathering, almost all the workshops would be dealing with, you know, dismantling patriarchy or decolonization or, you know, again, really important issues. But there would be nothing on, I don't know, learning about red wolf reintroduction or, you know, going on a plant walk. And, and so those things are still there, but I, I think... And people complained, you know, there, and it doesn't just break down by age. I mean, this really is, I think, you know, a fraught issue within the movement, and it does fracture communities uh, because, yeah, perhaps it's 
people like to identify the old, oh, they were, you know, the founders of Earth First. They were just patriarchal, blah, blah, blah. It's easy to just characterize them that way. Oh, they were all sexist, transphobic, et cetera. But I, I think it's a much more complicated picture than that. They were complicated people, and they prioritized, you know, what they understood to be wilderness issues over anything else. And that gave them a kind of focus and a kind of effectiveness so I think there is a danger that, you know, really getting out and acting gets um, delayed by, you know, what you, you know, you pointed out, the process. There's this process that's taking us back into, I mean, that was a great way to think about it, is taking us back into the, the human and, you know, preventing us from continuing to develop these sorts of relationships that are so important with other species and their concerns. How can we think about their concerns if we're so focused on our own? So there's no easy answer to this. I I feel like it's going to continue to be a struggle. I hope it will continue to be talked about, that that what is lost is talked about. and And it was, at least in my experience in the communities that I was involved with, People recognized that something was lost when they did spend so much time on, you know, working through these relationships between humans. So, yeah, how to figure out what's the right amount of that work that needs to be done. I don't know, right isn't the, you know, what's the, what's the healthy amount of that work that needs to be done? And, you know, to what extent can you continue to really work and promote and create these new kinds of communities that take into account all the other relationships outside of the human world. Yeah, it's a, it's a busy it's a busy democracy. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is a busy. You know? And these are anarchist movements too. So it isn't, you know, it's when you and and I guess this is one other point I want to make and and, and perhaps it sounds unkind, but when you have uh, groups that run by consensus, usually, and tend to be um, more anarchist in focus, there is the opportunity for you know one person with an axe to grind to really derail things, and you know the importance of hearing everyone's voice. I wouldn't want to lose that. On the other hand, you know there need to be some ways of you know hearing everyone's voice but still working together to act in ways that help to, you know, change our relationship um, to ecosystems and, and to forests and all of that. Absolutely. One of the uh, most uh, politically incisive uh, events in my life was I went to my, was my uh, second rainbow gathering and I went into the tent where they had a lot of uh, zines and flyers. This was the early 90s. And there was a little gu- a Machiavellian guide to consensus uh, processes, and it was an incredibly yeah. cynical description of how uh, you can yeah. manipulate the process. But it, it cleared right. my eyes of something that it will. That I'll never, I'll never fall into certain illusions about that process again. Though obviously, it's very powerful and has its, uh, its significant place. But we got to end it there, Sarah. Thanks so much for joining us on Expanding Mind. Oh, Eric, thank you. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Great. And uh, for folks out there, it's For the Wild by Sarah Pike. Until next week, keep your minds open.